Hello, and welcome to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm your host, Donald Thompson, Diversity and Inclusion Executive and CEO of WalkWest in Raleigh, North Carolina. On this podcast, we share insights and perspectives from global leaders in diversity and share journeys of amazing professionals who've overcome the odds to reach their goals. We'll hear what diversity means, why businesses should prioritize diversity and inclusion initiatives, and why DNI is not only the right thing to do, but an imperative for growth for you and your company. In essence, why diversity is beyond the checkbox. Before we get started, remember to sign up for updates on future podcasts and all of our upcoming diversity initiatives, including the course, Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Sign up at thediversitymovement.com. You know, most of the time you think about diversity, you think about race, you think about gender, think about sexual orientation. But diversity goes way beyond the obvious. There's diversity of backgrounds, diversity of your current life situation, your ability or disability. John Samuel, a good close friend of mine, is differently abled. He's 100% blind. He can hear this podcast, but he can't see you and I in our daily interaction. What is it like to walk a day in his shoes? What is it like to have to overcome the biases that we all have when we work with or see someone that's different from us. In talking with John, we're going to learn about his struggles, but more importantly, we're going to learn on the opportunities that he's chasing as a business owner, as a leader, as a husband, as a father, and that being differently abled is not something that has created a long-term roadblock. It's been something that he's overcome, and now he spends his time helping others to do the same. He's the son of immigrant parents who came to the United States 50 years ago. And for John, that meant he was different right away. It was interesting being born to Indian immigrant parents in North Carolina. Because when I was in school, I was the only, uh, I was the only Indian kid. So going to through school, you know, I was really uh, kind of the only person of uh, any color that I saw in my class for the first uh, seven years of my life. The next year, I moved up to New Jersey. My dad's career was taking him places, and um, we moved up to New Jersey. Again, another upper-middle-class community, again, where I was the only Indian kid uh, that I saw in my classrooms. So I was wondering, was just me out there. Um, And then uh, my dad's career took us out to Tokyo, where I spent the next three years of my life, which was probably an amazing experience where I learned to live in a different culture, live a place where I didn't know how to speak to anybody, where I didn't look like anyone again. Uh, but I had this independence. Actually, I ended up going out to school at VCU in Richmond. The decision to go to VCU was one that I wasn't really um, fond of. It was almost a fallback. Uh, my sister was actually, I have an older sister who was in med school in Richmond. And my uh, parents were moving out to India for their job again. And my parents didn't trust me to be in North Carolina. <laughs> alone. alone. Uh, so it's it. kind of the opposite of the empty nester. I didn't leave my parents. They left me. But there were some things that happened to me in high school that caused me um, to to not be trusted. I, I, <laughs> okay. I, I had, uh, you know, I was a young kid who uh, who um, who had some great friends, people who loved me. But uh, I was also just interested in. Um, I started to party, and also um, there was an incident. I actually, it's a it's a silly thing, but uh, I uh, was skipping class one day, and I ended up um, going over to a grocery store and. Uh, uh, I stole some candy. I ended up getting caught. Wow. And um, that moment really was a life-changing moment because um, I felt like I lost a lot of credibility. I didn't know that, you know, what people would think about me. I mean, it was just something that my parents were devastated, Indian immigrant parents who, kid is getting in trouble. This is not the not what they wanted. You know, they wanted the doctor. They wanted the engineer. And here yeah. I am getting in trouble. 
and I and I felt that that moment I lost my credibility and who could trust me after that and and that kind of uh, stuck with me for a few years afterwards. No, oh, wow. One, I appreciate the openness and the candor because we all have speed bumps in our life and valleys in our life that are changing. Let's lean into that just a little bit. Not so much the incident, but how do you rebuild that credibility yeah, right? it was with, with your family, with your friends, with yourself? Yeah, it was tough. You know, one of the things that I, I didn't mention, you know, my name is John Samuel, not your traditional Indian name, you know, but my family comes from the southwest part of India, in a state called Kerala, where it's uh, a lot of Christians. I am a Christian and it's part of my faith. And that was something that helped me get through that, that challenging time to kind of help me myself get through that. Got it. But to get the other people kind of build up that credibility again, that was a challenge. You know, my parents didn't trust me. Like I said, they sent me up to Richmond to be next to my sister. But there was a lot of self-doubt within myself. So that when I was talking to teachers and professors, when things were kind of going on with my vision loss, I didn't think they'd believe me. So I didn't say anything at all. Oh, man. Let's let's expand upon that. Continue to talk to us about that process and the difficulties in the covering of now starting to lose your vision. Yeah. So it was actually my first year in college that I was diagnosed with a degenerating vision loss, a degenerating uh, eye problem or impairment that um, called retinitis pigmentosa. And what happened was it, when I was in high school, I had been losing my sight. But I didn't realize it. You know, I thought maybe I was just not as good of a basketball player anymore. I just thought <laughs> maybe I was, uh, you know, my dreams of being the first Indian in the NBA just it wasn't going to happen. That's you know? awesome. Um, and then I thought maybe I was just a bad driver. You know, you hear about this, this stereotype. So maybe this maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. I'm just a bad driver. Awesome. So, you know, it was all these things. So I was like, well, maybe, I don't know what's going on. And, and, and like I said, I like the party. So I was like, well, maybe it's all these things. I, I didn't know what it was. And but when I got to college and I was just going to like the dining hall, I remember, and I was tripping over things. And I was like, this isn't normal. Something's going on here. I uh, told my parents, I'm like, you know, I was already having trouble driving at night. I didn't like to drive at night. And there was even moments where I go out with a girl and they drive my car, you know, because I felt that I just couldn't. It was just hard for me to drive. And so there were all these things that kind of got me to tell my parents, I'm like, mom, dad, I think something's with my eyes. We got to get this checked out. And so we uh, ended up uh, going to the doctor and, and um, getting tested out. But the interesting thing is I wasn't told about my vision impairment. I actually found out by accident because my parents were out of town in India. They were working there. And I uh, came back to their house one day just to hang out with my friends. And, uh, and I saw this name of uh, retinitis pigmentosa written down on a, on a piece of paper on my dad's desk. And I looked it up. And that's how I found out about it. So... Why weren't you told? Were your parents in denial? Were they looking for the right time yeah. to explain it to you? Like, how was that? Like, that's an interesting way to find out a life-changing thing. Yeah, I think they were in denial. Maybe this has to do with kind of that um, that Asian ancestry, that kind of that background, that culture of one, not talking about disabilities. We didn't really talk about many personal things. You know, my parents were great people, loving parents who had the best of me, supported me and gave me everything I needed. But it, we really didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't talk about things that were difficult like this. So I think that had something to do with it. Uh, I think they were in denial. They didn't want to believe that this was the issue because essentially what retinitis pigmentosa is doing is it's taking away the pigments in your eyes or, and you're going to be, it's a degenerating condition where you're going to be blind. It, you know, what parent wants to think about that for their own child? And uh, I think that's what they were 
in a position where they were at, and um, they were working uh, in another country, not near me. And I think it was just kind of like, right, let's just put it out of sight, out of mind right now. So let's let's move to this bright future that you've built for yourself and others as an entrepreneur and a business leader. And how have you succeeded in spite of being legally blind? Like, what have you done both personally, emotionally, but then also what type of things have you done to actually push you forward in the business landscape? Because you haven't let it slow you down. Like, you're doing great stuff. Yeah. You know, you're right. I mean, in the beginning, though, I didn't. I let it hold me down. So when I was in college, I let it hold me down. I let it uh, impact me. And um, it actually caused me to fail out of college at VCU. And so I decided to come back down to Raleigh to be next to my friends, kind of the same high school friends that I mentioned before. Uh, I moved in with them in college. And it was living with them and Dom making sure that I was still participating in everything. They didn't treat me any different. And as they were all graduating and moving on with their lives and getting, you know, good jobs, going off, going off to med school or going into jobs and making more money, I knew I had to go and kind of buckle down because I didn't want to be left behind. It was not a peer pressure, but it was a wanting to be with my peers, right? I wanted to keep up with my peers. I wanted to have a future with my peers, my friends, these brothers that I had built. I hunkered down and started to just get through school. And I ended up, I kind of hustled my way into NC State. So, uh, so actually, and I think this is kind of where that, that, that kind of attitude that I, that confidence I built in high school kind of transpired into this because at NC State, I couldn't transfer because I, I was academically suspended from VCU. And so I couldn't come down to NC State and transfer. So I ended up going to the lifelong education route. So I was able to take two courses at NC State each semester. So I started doing that. I ended up just taking so many courses that they eventually had to take me. And so, awesome. <laughs> so I kind of bypassed the system to get into NC State. And uh, I ended up finishing up with an accounting degree. And just that kind of hustle, kind of get into school, you know, kind of uh, the back, I found a back way in. and uh, Would not be denied. Would not be denied. And I think that was kind of the thing that said, okay, I can do this. If I can get into college, in a better college than I initially got into, and now I'm, I'm graduating with an accounting degree from NC State. But the biggest barrier for me at this point was transportation. And so I was struggling to drive at night. And I knew what time sunset was every day. I checked the day. I knew what time at sunrise and sunset because I knew I'd get home before it got dark. And so when I was in college, I sometimes had to just leave, just leave class because it was getting dark and I didn't tell any professors. But it was still that kind of hustle. You know, I figured out a way despite missing lots of class and those type of things that hustling, that kind of that this, I'm going to get through. I can get through. Yep. And so after I finished up at college, I decided to go out to India, Bangalore, India, because there's there a couple of reasons. One, uh, my dad and mom had moved back from India, back in North Carolina. And my dad told me, he's like, oh, you can never live in India. It's too tough. And I kind of took that on. I was like, all right, I can do this. Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. I decided I'm going to go out to Bangalore, India. But I also knew I could get a car and a driver there. So I was like, all right, I can take care of the transportation. And I'm going to go and prove my dad wrong. Because I think I kind of always had this thing. I wanted to prove my dad that I can do it, right? That's awesome. Because I think that, you know, I wasn't the typical success story for them, right? My sister was gotten to med school out of high school. She was a oh my doctor. Gosh. Yeah. So this is kind of what I'm living up to. I got, yeah, yeah. I got, got some standards this is the standard to, live to. to live up to. Exactly. And so this was a way for me to prove to my parents that, hey, I can do this, dad. I can do this. And so I went out there. I joined a boutique software firm and I worked in the currency hedging 
on the treasury desk because now at this point fully fully blind legally? no no at okay. this time my vision is still deteriorating still good. so okay. nighttime is gone but i could still use a computer i could still see okay. the computer it was a struggle i had to get really close to the monitor and i was trying to figure out ways to accommodate at this time but uh when i got to india it was a unique work experience because coming there i may look like an indian but i was not treated like a an indian i was seen as an outsider gotcha. and it was a really challenging part of time in my life it was, uh, I worked there for two years and it was that experience again that I, I kind of got tough skin because they didn't hold back. They didn't, uh, treat me any differently because I couldn't see, but they did treat me differently because of my background and where I was coming from. That was a kind of a eye opening experience of what's about to come in my life. But again, I overcame that two years there. I built some beautiful relationships with friends. I struggled, you know, in the workspace with my management side, but, um, uh, I had built some beautiful relationships, and but I had learned a lot, and so but I ended up coming back to the U.S. and I moved to New York City. Wow! I moved there because of the transportation again. I was all right. There's a subway system. I can get around taxis. This is going to take care of that barrier. But I moved out to New York with just a suitcase, two suitcases, and uh, I moved in with uh, one of my college buddies. He had an empty couch, and he lived with uh, two other people, and moved on their couch. And this was just again me traveling to kind of find places that were going to be more accommodating for me, right? I knew that if I lived in a city, I didn't have to worry about the transportation. I could walk around. And so that 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 would give me an opportunity to pursue, continue my career. But when I got to New York, I had no job. But, you know, I had this carefree kind of mentality like, oh, yeah, things are going to work out. Things are just going to work out. I'll find a job. And uh, things did. It was an interesting time during the recession. I ended up finding a job with the city of New York in their deferred compensation plan. And uh, essentially, my job was to go and educate city employees on how to not take their money out of, uh, uh, of their pension because during the recession, people were scared and they're yep. taking their money out. And so my job was to go around and educate them not to take the money out. Got it. And so I, that was a really good experience because, again, I got to use one of my best attributes and that was my way to relate with people, talk to people. When I was in India, I had those personal relationships. But from a business standpoint, I was like I was dealing with all the banks and kind of this this different culture. Now as coming to New York, I'm dealing with actual people and people of different backgrounds. It wasn't that, you know, those white collar jobs, you know, you were police officers, fire people, sanitation workers, everybody who worked in the in the city. And I'm going That's to the, awesome. their place of work and I got a, in all over the five boroughs. This is not just Manhattan. This is every single borough where you walk into somewhere that you know, I don't know what languages are being spoken. You know, it's just so diverse, you know, everywhere you're going. And it was just a, a really unique experience for me to interact with people of different cultures, different socioeconomic backgrounds, just everything. When even just the smallest things for me to get a, find a way to get to, you know, far parts of the Bronx, figuring out what trains I had to do and kind of get through like all the subways to the buses to walking the streets, finding that kind of workarounds and solutions, it gave me confidence. That's you awesome. Know, every day that these are kind of the things, the building blocks. I'm not going to be denied. Now I'm feeling confident that I can get around. You know, even though my site's gone, I can, if I can get to every single part of the five boroughs, you know, maybe this is a place I can live and have a, a successful career. But at the same time, my peer group, the people I was hanging out with, they were on Wall Street. They were lawyers. They were making a lot of money. And I wasn't. And I was seeing this. And I've seen them talk about going to go get their MBAs and doing their CFAs and all these, you know, higher ed degrees. And here I was just feeling like I had hustled my way into college. 
barely getting by. Here I am working for the city. I didn't think I had the pedigree or the the, the background that all these other people had that I was meeting in New York. And, and that was, again, kind of low confidence. I was losing my confidence kind of being around these people. But um, I got this call from an executive one day who I used to work with in India. And he um, was on the board of a company called Aster, and they wanted to start up a telecommunication infrastructure company in Cameroon in, in uh, West Central Africa. They were actually trying to get in touch with someone else, but I asked them what they were trying to do, and I said, send me out there. I'll go do it. That's awesome. And so I had to convince them that I could do something like this. They didn't know about my vision loss, but you know, I was able to just kind of talk them into letting me go. That was a really uh, amazing experience because why I went there was I thought this is what's going to separate me from everybody else. These guys who are working on in the investment banks and, and these lawyers who are thinking about their MBAs or whatever they're doing, you know, now if I go to Africa, that's going to be something. Yep. You know, that's going to be that's going to separate me. And so I ended up going out there, took a twenty thousand dollar investment, went to Cameroon and started up this telecom infrastructure company. But I think again, you know, how many people are going to go out there and do that? Again, it was something that I had this feeling of that I can go do anything I wanted. And this is a way that I could differentiate myself. And uh, I had the confidence of doing it, I think, from living in India and also living in New York, being able to get around. It was just the next step in that journey. No, that's super powerful and, and certainly a great story that can inspire our, our listeners. When we think about diversity, we make it easy, right? Race, ethnicity, sexual orientation. But what we're talking about is people that are differently abled. Give me some education on some of the things that you would want people to know and understand, right, about the differently abled in terms of whether it be some success stories or some lessons that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah. When I went out to Cameron, I'll kind of talk about that story real quick, because when the company found out that I couldn't see, they told me, oh, gosh, we're only going to give you six months to work there and we'll just wash our hands if things don't work out. And so when I went out there and was able to go and kind of figure out how to navigate this foreign country, how to figure out how to get a business license in a country I don't even speak the language, how to hire people, how to land a customer, and how to execute on a project all within six months, that just shows kind of what a problem solver is. And I think people with disabilities are problem solvers. Mm. You know, every day we have to figure out how to just get from point A to point B or to do some simple tasks. So we have to figure out ways to accommodate ourselves to get there, right? And that with people with disabilities, I think, we are problem solvers. We persevere. We keep going. And that's something that you can't teach. What type of employer doesn't want somebody like that? No, that's super awesome. And thanks for that. Let's fast forward and, and get to present day. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing at LCI Tech. And the amazing people that you have as a part of the vision that you uh, vision, for lack of a better word, yeah. uh, that you are bringing on board to really achieve some great things. Yeah, LCI Techs is a division of LCI. LCI is the largest employer of people who are blind. It's a nonprofit that's been around for 80 years, and our focus has primarily been on manufacturing, and so creating jobs for people who are blind in manufacturing. Manufacturing is a noble profession, but it's not necessarily for everybody. And so what we wanted to do was create this upper mobility for people, this knowledge, for lack of better words, knowledge-based jobs in technology. So we started looking at technology services as our next growth area. And that's essentially what LCI Tech is. 
is a technology services business. And the first line of business that we started looking at was call centers. We thought we could outsource call center work. And so we had a in-house customer service business. And that customer service business was employing around eight or nine people who were blind or low vision. And so we thought this is something we can take to other companies. But when we went to, to talk to these companies who had this desire to bring on people with disabilities into their workforce and they thought customer service would be a great opportunity, we looked at their software and just wasn't accessible for the technology, the assistive technology that we use to navigate digital content. And so that's when I took a step back and said, hey, we really need to remove that barrier because people can have the best of intentions, but until we remove the accessibility issue or the barrier, we can't set up somebody for success. Mm. And so that's why we focused on providing digital accessibility services. And so right now we have five people on the team who are focused to provide testing of digital content, whether it be websites or mobile apps, to check to see if it can be used by assistive technology, not just for people who are blind, but people of all disabilities. And so we have um, low vision people. We have people who are totally blind, and uh, they go through and uh, follow the web content accessibility guidelines criteria to make sure that it's uh, accessible for all people. One of the things that you mentioned was low vision. It seems, and I want you to correct me if I'm I'm wrong, it's not just people that might have something that is uh, a, a disease of some type, but as we all age, right, our vision tends to yep. get less perfect, so to speak. And so isn't that something that also affects just our general population, right, as we age? Exactly right. You know, as we look at the baby boomers, this aging population, you know, we're more likely to bring on a disability as we get older in our in age and in our life. You know, we joke and say that the disability community is the most inclusive organization. We'll bring anybody on. <laughs> It doesn't matter what color you are, what religion you are, you know, we'll bring you on. You, know, you can all get a disability at some point in your life. And uh, that is correct. You know, it's, it's, you may not have a disability today, but, you know, there's a likely, high likelihood that in your lifetime, you or somebody in your life will have a disability that's going to impair them. And it may just be as, you know, having a hard time seeing your computer screen or your mobile phone or even having a hard time hearing. And this is what we're trying to help. Oh, that's awesome. I like pizza. There's a there's a story uh, to do with accessibility. Tell me a little bit about the Domino's pizza case. Yeah, who doesn't like pizza, right? And, uh, <laughs> and I guess a lot of blind people do too. That's right. Because, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in January, there was a case that an individual, a blind individual, had sued Domino's because their mobile app and uh, website weren't accessible for their screen reading technology. And so the Ninth Circuit Court in California ruled that under the ADA, this individual could sue Domino's because they saw that Domino's was a a place of public accommodation, meaning that anybody can go and eat at this establishment. This is something that needs to be accessible for everyone. The challenging component of this is that the ADA was written in 1990, but the internet wasn't publicly available until 1993. So there was a gap, right? Got it. And so the ADA did not specifically talk about digital content. And so that's where Domino's was arguing, saying, hey, it's not in the ADA. So why do we need to provide this? But rather than just going and fixing it, Domino's said, we're going to take it to the Supreme Court. 
And the Supreme Court said, we're not going to take this case, and that it's going to go back to the Ninth Circuit ruling of saying that people with disabilities can sue digital content, organizations that have digital content under the ADA. That is uh, powerful in yeah. terms of, number one, making accessibility right a corporate charter. Yes. Right. For many organizations. And I think that's good because at the end of the day, the more people that has accessibility, at the end of the day, there's actually more good commerce that can get done. One of the questions I'd lean into is accessibility is the right thing to do, but talk about why it's just good business. Yeah. You know, a lot of companies were worried about this case. Even the Chamber of Commerce, the United States Chamber of Commerce was saying they didn't want accessibility be uh, lawsuits to be going on. You know, because they were thinking, oh, it's going to hurt business. But actually, it's going to help business. Because as we talked about, there's 20% of people in the country that have a disability. And as we have a, a fast-growing aging population who are getting disabilities on, on, a, on a rapid basis, you know, we want to make sure that all those individuals have access to online retail, online you know, menus, anything, you know, that we can, any information that we can access online. Because, you know, everywhere we go, everyone's got a phone, right? Everyone's got a, a, a computer that we're accessing information. So if we're restricting a, a large number of people from that, we're excluding a group of potential clients that companies don't want to miss out on. So final question, I super enjoyed spending time and, and getting to know you and, and, and your business and your story is powerful. For people taking this diversity inclusion course, what are some of the things you'd like to leave them with as they learn about diversity, inclusion, and equity? What are some of the things you'd like to share with them? So there's a couple of things. You know, I think when we think about removing the barriers, you know, from my perspective, I see a couple of key barriers. One is accessibility. It's critical that we make sure we talk about equity. This is an actionable step that we can do to make it an equal playing field for everybody by making sure that digital content is accessible. The next is on the training and, and certifications and these type of things. We're spending so much time and effort on making sure that we're training our, uh, upskilling our, our workforce. But unless it's accessible for everybody, we're going to be leaving some people behind. And, but then third is that, is that corporate culture. It's important that as an organization that we are thinking about this from the top down, from every aspect of it. And we have to have changed that mindset to see the value of, of having a much more inclusive workforce to represent our community that we serve outside, no matter what company you are. But from my own experience, I think the best learning, and I think what my story shows is that it's that proximity to people of all different types is what builds empathy. Mm. And so we can learn about it, but until oh. we spend time with people who are different than you or I, that's only when we're going to build empathy and understand why is this important that we're trying to do. No, I think that's right. And I think our relationship as it continues to grow and develop is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, I like to consider myself very open-minded and very broad in my thinking, but not having a friend that's blind until you and I have gotten to know each other, it wasn't top of mind, yeah, right? It wasn't something that I thought about in my day-to-day -day business and different things. Proximity to a broad and diverse group of people creates empathy. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful lesson and then something that we should all continue to think about and strive for. John, thanks so much for joining us and spending your valuable time with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. What an amazing conversation with John today. 
the son of immigrant parents that came to the United States 50 years ago, his experience in Tokyo of having to get around. One of the things that is unique to John's experience, but not unique to any of us that are trying to overcome obstacles in our life, is that he found a way to win independent of his personal barriers. And that's really all we're trying to encourage people to do. Whether it's diversity inclusion, whether it's trying to get funding for your new business, where you're trying to get promoted at work, whether you're struggling in a relationship, we're trying to encourage people to be their best self tomorrow and give tips and paths forward to be able to do that. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. As I mentioned at the top of the show, sign up at thediversitymovement.com to get updates on our upcoming diversity inclusion course, Diversity Beyond the Checkbox, which features excerpts from this podcast and others. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and a review, and more importantly, tell a friend. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. If you're looking for information on full-service podcast production, head over to EarFluence.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Diversity Beyond the Checkbox.